We are highly privileged people. We enjoy a very high standard of living compared with people in other cultures around the world. And even more so, we enjoy a high standard of living in comparison with previous generations and eras of human history. Standing on the achievements of our ancestors, we can go to the doctor, and that doctor can prescribe for us a simple medication which we take, and in a matter of a few days, we're feeling just fine from an illness that would have killed people and did kill massive numbers of people in previous ages. We're privileged people. Each week we secure food items with a level of ease and in quantities that would have been unimaginable even for a king in past ages. And we go weekly because of the modern convenience of in-home refrigeration units. And on that point, there's some of you here, if you'll admit it or not, you remember the day when refrigeration of food meant going to a lake in the winter, carving out large chunks and blocks of ice, putting them on a sled, horse-drawn sled, to pull to some outhouse on your property, an in-ground cellar, putting the ice there, and that's where the food was stored. I know, I've talked to you. That was your refrigerator, and it was not the only modern convenience then located in an outbuilding. We're privileged people. Most of us lived in an ancient world in which people who lost track of one another at a mall or an airport or a ball game might spend hours looking for one another. In those bygone pre-cell phone days, there was no way to find one another until you found one another. We live in privileged days, don't we? Our location on the timeline of human development places us in a highly privileged position. We enjoy these privileges every day of our lives, at least with respect to many physical conveniences and benefits. But what I'd like us to consider here today, this morning, we are far more highly privileged when it comes to our relationship to God. We who live on this side of the cross stand at a highly privileged place in the timeline of God's saving purposes. We live in an era of privilege, hard won through the preceding eras of salvation history, hard won by the people of God who trusted Him, and hard won by what God has done through the ages. We are not better than people who lived before the discovery of penicillin, And we are not better than people who live before the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But living on this side of the cross, we do enjoy a highly privileged standing in Christ. And that is a realization that will fill us with joy and hope if we fully grasp it. It will indeed change us. It will change our orientation. It will encourage us as we consider our participation in the ways of God through the ages. This is a theme the Apostle Peter stresses early in his first epistle as he seeks to equip new believers who are suffering persecution for their faith. 
He takes time to consider this idea, and I think it's vital for us. He realizes that withstanding the onslaught against their faith demands that they see their lives from God's perspective. And so Peter is laboring here in this first chapter of 1 Peter, if you'll make your way there. He labors here first to align their thinking to see the wonder of their salvation. This is where we must start. This is a taste we have to have. If our faith is to survive such trials. And so he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, or He has begotten us anew, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have this salvation. It's a salvation that's working itself out in your life, and there is this future inheritance that is coming. He resounds this word on salvation at verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This rescue from sin and death provided by Jesus in His death and resurrection. So bringing this initial emphasis on salvation through that death and resurrection, and bringing it now to crescendo, Peter encourages his readers in verses 10-12 through 12 to consider where they stand on the timeline of salvation history. This is an effort in self-perception. It's an effort in historical understanding. We live in such an unrooted time. Peter will not allow that for his readers. He presses them to consider we are rooted at a specific place and it's a highly privileged position. We need to recognize that and understand that about ourselves. Understand that about what God is doing in our lives. It's a crucial consideration for these readers as they fight for faith and for us as we battle for faith. So at verse 10, picking up that theme of salvation there sounded in verse 9, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, I'll call that time and circumstance, we'll talk about that later, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long desire to look. Coming back to verse 10, we find here two parties and one topic. Two entities, the prophets and Peter's readers. Putting these two together, the topic that relates the two parties is the grace that was to be yours. This grace is just another way of saying this salvation. He uses it as a synonym here. This grace, this salvation in Christ, all that he's been talking about. These believers responded to that grace and the prophets 
thought hard about that grace. So we have two parties, both thinking about the same theme. Now there's a crucial question at this point, and we'll take a little time to work through it, but I think it is very vital to the interpretation of this passage, and helps us, I think, even in some sense to think through it more carefully, and that is, who are these prophets? Some commentators argue that the prophets here are New Testament prophets. We understand, as we look at this graphic here, the cross of Christ as an era-dividing event. Prior to the cross of Christ, we have Old Testament prophets who ministered, proclaimed the Word of God, and now we're dealing here in a New Testament book with Peter's readers who are on the other side of the cross. These prophets, some would say, are New Testament prophets. This is what Peter's referring to here in the text. And so they were studying the Old Testament prophets, the Scriptures, and they were discerning in the Scriptures that they were speaking about Christ as Messiah and the salvation, the sufferings and the glories of Christ. And then as they worked hard to discern what these prophets were saying, studying these Scriptures, these New Testament prophets then, through and particularly evangelists, communicated this message to the readers of this book. I believe rather than New Testament prophets that Peter has in mind Old Testament prophets. And that it is these Old Testament prophets who were considering this grace that has now been brought to Peter's readers. They were thinking forward to another people. They didn't know who they were. They couldn't fully conceive of their standing on the other side of the cross, but they, as Old Testament prophets, were thinking in that direction. Let me offer just briefly three supports. It's not just uh, just we want to just say this, but why do we say this? Why are they Old Testament prophets? I think this will make sense. Why would Peter refer to prophets and not to apostles? If New Testament prophets are in view, why does Peter not refer to the apostles? There were New Testament prophets, but it is the apostles of Christ who would have spoken with particular authority to gospel moorings in the Old Testament. Not a solid proof, but certainly something to consider. Secondly, Peter's readers are described as having a knowledge that the prophets did not have. Did you read the text that way? It seems that he's saying that. They have knowledge that the prophets do not have. The grace these believers have received is a grace the prophets were not fully able to comprehend. If the prophets stood on the same side of the cross, they would have an equally clear understanding. But they do not. I think here is a far more solid indication. And the second really like to it and linked to it, or the third rather, Linked to the second, these prophets served others. You see that in the text. These prophets served others. New Testament prophets would have benefited from the message that they proclaimed to others. So the New Testament prophets could be said to be serving others, but they're also participating in what they are proclaiming. So for these, I think, fairly solid reasons we should argue here that these prophets in view are Old Testament prophets. It's very critical to the interpretation that proceeds here. Old Testament prophets 
prophesying before Jesus' death and resurrection, announced the gospel. They spoke about the grace that is in Christ's sufferings and in His glories. And as they did this, we notice in verse 10 that they searched and inquired carefully. These words at the end of verse 10, searched and inquired, speak of an arduous, fervent investigation. What were these prophets investigating? So we have, verse 10, this salvation, this grace that is to be ours. They were searching, they were investigating. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What's going on here? They're asking. Let me give you first, before we dig through verse 11, let me just give you first the basic idea. It is clear that we serve a God who speaks. God loves to communicate. And through the ages, the Holy Spirit has revealed truth, particularly to prophets. Men of God, directed in their thoughts and writings by the Holy Spirit, communicate what God wants His people to know. Sometimes God revealed to the prophets future developments to his saving plan, developments that they did not fully comprehend. They recognized that they were looking forward. They did not fully recognize what God was saying, what the Spirit was indicating. Now before returning to the narrow meaning of verse 11, knowing that's basically the idea, let's pan out even further and think in broader terms about the prophetic office. What do you know about the prophets of the Old Testament? Who were these guys, and how did, where did they stand in salvation history? What was their function? Do you remember the scene at the end of the Gospel according to Luke in which the risen Christ appears to two disciples? A great scene in 24 of Luke, and they're working their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus where they live, and not recognizing who Jesus is, these disciples explain that their hopes that Jesus was Messiah had been crushed when he was executed on a Roman cross. They're stunned that this traveler doesn't know these things, but they describe it to him and, and they, they share their discouragement. Remember how Jesus answers them? He answers them really with a rebuke. Remember what he says? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Did you catch that? Suffering and glory. Here's that theme again that Peter is sounding. The sufferings of Christ, the glories of Christ. Which way is he pointing? There are no New Testament texts. He's pointing only backwards to the prophets of old. Beginning then, Jesus, with Moses and all the prophets, that's the, what we know as the Old Testament, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He opens the Old Testament text, the Hebrew Bible, and talks about Himself in it. Of course, they don't know yet that He is who He is. That will come out later. But it is on the authority of this passage and much, much more by way of consideration, it is the conviction of born-again believers that the Old Testament points unmistakably and repeatedly to Jesus as Messiah. The writings of Moses, Jesus unfolded for these believers. 
The writings of Moses point to Jesus, and I would argue that that begins at least in chapter 3 and verse 15, where God prophesies that a single representative of a godly line of people will crush Satan's head in a mutual death blow. Very vague, but very helpful. And that godly line is traced out beginning in the very next chapter of Genesis, and it works itself uh, further in and through the book as we see who that line is, the election of Abraham, his son Isaac, and Jacob, and working our way through. And then in, Je- in Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies that the tribe of Judah will produce kings. And that ultimate tribute will be given by the nations to one of those kings. You say, if you're tracking with the book of Genesis, you're certainly expecting that the kings are going to come from Joseph. No, the prophecy is that kings will come from the tribe of Judah. These people, Abraham's family. As we work our way through Moses and his books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we could say much, much more, but we remember Moses prophesies that a prophet like him will be raised up from among the Israelites. And as we're tracking with Moses there, we say, well, certainly that's Joshua, his replacement. It is. But Joshua becomes something of a paradigm of a greater Joshua to come. The name means, in fact, Savior or Yeshua, Jesus. And as Joshua of old crosses the Jordan and marches into Canaan to conquer the enemies of God, so the greater Joshua will cross Jordan, march up to Jerusalem, and conquer our ultimate enemy, death itself. What did Jesus teach them about Moses and how he spoke of him? So much more could be stated. But he also taught the two on the road to Emmaus that the Old Testament prophets point to Jesus. Not only Moses and his writings, the first five books, but all that follows referred to generally as the prophets. Following Israel's momentous exodus from Egypt, which we find in the book of Exodus, the new nation received an outpouring of divine revelation. And there is a connection there. A great event followed by an outpouring of revelation. We know that revelation comes in the form of the law on Mount Sinai, including numerous prophecies about Messiah in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Another momentous transition in Israel's history came with the establishment of the monarchy. Again, this transition was followed by an outpouring of divine revelation. Now not on a mountain to one individual in a fairly short period of time, but now to many individuals, the prophets, over an extended period of time. The monarchy is formed and with it come the emergence of the prophets. There have been prophets before, but it becomes a very decided piece of Israel's history as these prophets minister in in the interest of the monarchy. The prophets preached, as we know, repentance and obedience to the Mosaic law, calling the people always to come back to the purposes of God. In this function, the prophets then are reminding Israel over and again that the monarchy is to be actually theocracy, the rule of God as king over his people. But the prophets also looked into the future to a greater day to come. 
And as the prophets continued to write, the rule of King David began to fulfill the promise of kings from the tribe of Judah. But David also became a paradigm for a greater day. As there was a greater Joshua, so there will be a greater King David, a son of David. And a new age of redemption will come with this greater King. The prophets continue to see the dawning of this kingdom of this day. So you ask, did Israel ever fully obey the prophets? Did they really listen to the preachers of Israel and turn from their sin and obey the law of God? Ultimately, no. But God promised the faithful remnant through the faithful prophets to take hope in a future day. I paraphrase here. I think it comes from the German, if I'm not mistaken, from Gerhardus Voss and thus into English and now to paraphrase. But I think it'll work. It's an excellent statement in his book on biblical theology. He said the prophets felt. Now, you put yourself in the sandals and the robe of the prophet, proclaiming the word of the Lord, nobody ever listening, it seems. The prophets felt to a large extent that their times were out of sync with God's plan and that they lived among a people who had no interest in what was most precious to the prophets themselves, which is what? The word of the Lord, His grace, His ways. The prophets were thus bent instinctively to seek compensation in the future for what the present denied them. So they wrote with a great zeal about the day when the truth they preached would be vindicated and the message their audience scorned would be realized. That day would indeed come and would be organically related to God's covenant with King David. David himself sees this in Psalm 110 as he recognizes that a son greater than himself would rule and that his kingdom would endure forever. There would be a son whom he would call Lord. So the prophets were keenly aware of the continuity between their day and a future day, between their prophecies and the dawning of a new age of salvation that would come through the line of King David. They lived in an era of prophecy. We live in an era of fulfillment. And so the Old Testament, as one has put it, is impregnated with the future. In all that you read in the Old Testament, it's impregnated with the future. Take that simple line, if you're lost in the weeds here, take that simple line, the Old Testament is impregnated with the future, and read the Old Testament that way, just with that thought in view. Always it is pointing forward. Always it is looking for something greater than its own situation, its own time. Always the prophets are serving someone else. Someone who doesn't live now in their day. Someone future. A future that is hinged on David's greater son, the promised Messiah, who would tabernacle among his people. It's all moving there. Let's go back then to verse 11. With all that in view, as we consider the work of the prophets, they were searching, they were inquiring carefully, verse 10. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time. Let me stop there. The Greek I would read better, I believe, for what or which time. So you got the ESV has supplied the word person here. 
It's not in the original text. I don't think it would be best to supply it here. Literally, for what or which time, you have to fill in something. And I think better would be what time and what circumstances. So inquiring what time and what circumstances the Spirit in Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets are laboring to understand when this era of fulfillment will come and what would occasion that new age. The Spirit of Christ I take here to be the Holy Spirit. It's a different way of speaking of it. It may point to the preexistence of Christ. Some would argue that. But there's no question, is there, what it's talking about when they looked forward and saw the sufferings and the glories. The sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Messiah, and the subsequent glories. You've been with us here today? Have you been awake? What did we read earlier? Isaiah 53, a classic statement on the sufferings of Messiah. Now this is the king... This is the one to come. This is the one who will rule and reign in David's line. And yet, there's these descriptions prophetically of his suffering, of his bearing sin, of his death. Psalm 22, another passage of the suffering Messiah and the glories of Messiah. So as we think of His suffering, we think of the prophecies of Jesus being hated, betrayed, forsaken. False witnesses will testify against Him. He'll be unjustly judged, mocked, abused, tortured, and crucified. The prophets saw this. They didn't get it. How is this possible? Where is this going to happen? What are the circumstances? What is the time? What is God saying here? This might even grate against what they would really like to write but this one will suffer. We've got to get that. And they wrote it. And also the glories. Here we have the resurrection, the ascension, Christ highly exalted and reigning and His ultimate return. And again, prophetic evidences of this abound in the Old Testament. How, when, where, why Messiah would suffer. If we, can, if we can transport ourselves back there and just consider the significance of that for them, they're writing about something that doesn't make sense to them, something they, it doesn't settle very well at all, a mystery. How will this one that God sends to rule and reign suffer? They're laboring, they're working to understand And don't you kind of feel for them? They don't see what we see. We know how these sufferings play out. And these glories, we see it on this side of the empty tomb. And as these prophets considered these prophecies, they wondered these things. When would these exalted revelations of His glorious vindication come what would usher in the new age of fulfillment? They would never fully arrive at answers, although they tried, the text says. You remember how Jesus said this? He was right, Peter's right on track with the teachings of Christ here. Remember how he said this? Matthew 13, verse 17. 
Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. And he says, and they did not see it. They longed to hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. But God did make one thing clear to them, verse 12. He made this clear. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were not serving themselves. They, in the past, confused, unsure, searching out, knew they were serving you. So the prophets of Israel understood that their prophecies pointed forward to another time. They perceived that the new age to come would benefit a later people. And Christian, do you get this? That's you. That's us. We come here not as a social club. We come here as participants in a long string of salvation history where the prophets of old have been serving what we're singing about today. And the text of Scripture that we're reading, we read Isaiah 53 and it fills us with thanksgiving, with joy, with a sense of repentant hope. Our Savior was crucified for us. The prophet who wrote that didn't get that fully. How privileged we are. Isaiah, think of it, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, although they could not fully understand how their prophecies would play out, they recognized they were serving us. They didn't have our names in a book, I know. But they knew they were serving another day. They were serving us. We stand in the privileged stream of their labors to bring Christ to us, to prepare us to know who the one was that was God's Messiah. Their prophecies, verse 12 says, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So there's those prophets that were laying out God's revelatory preparation, and now there are evangelists who have brought that gospel to you. And you've responded. But again, that message is organically related to what the prophets proclaimed earlier. These things, in fact, are so glorious, they're so wonderful, that he says here, these things are matters into which angels long to look. The Greek text indicates that angels bend down with eager longing to understand our salvation. I don't think this is idle curiosity. They're bending down and going, wow, this is kind of amazing. It's nothing less than awe and wonder. He's spoken in verse 8 of the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we come to see what God has done in Christ. They long to look into that. They want to understand that joy, that exuberance, and that glory. Angels who have not fallen cannot fully grasp the joy that we experience to know that our sins have been forgiven that God from eternity past has been working out a plan by which we can be forgiven and live forever. They long to look into that. They stoop to study and to discern and seek to understand what an amazingly privileged position we enjoy. 
We do not gather periodically to offer a lamb on an altar. We do not participate in a system of repeated sacrifices which can never fully take away sin. We have the assurance of sins finally and totally forgiven. We have utter confidence to stand on our rock of salvation. There's no more questions. There's no more doubt. He has provided the final sacrifice. We have the assurance of an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is the source of inexpressible joy and is filled with glory. We are highly privileged people. According to a book I've read here recently, Why Me? by Jacob Damkani, he writes that it's common for Jews today to view the New Testament as an evil book written by Gentiles in order to justify atrocities against the Jews. That is, you talk to a Jewish person, ask them what do they think about the New Testament, and many would say that. A Gentile book meant to destroy our people. Indeed, we understand why they say that. Far less judgmental than I am understanding because many claiming to follow Christ through the centuries have persecuted the Jewish people worldwide in a depraved and twisted sense of devotion to Jesus. It's sick, but it's a reality. So what, what, where do you get that idea? We say to a Jewish friend, hey, look at history. They would cite the Crusades. Crusaders came in with crosses on their chests, and they killed our people. They went to run us out of our promised land. They looked to the Inquisition, particularly in Spain, and where many Jewish people were forced to convert or die. They look to the Nazi regime, and again, this nation that perceives itself as a Christian nation, many of them justifying the slaughter of the Jews because of this New Testament book. Understand why many Jewish people think that Christians are simply butchers, at least historically. It's very sad to us. A sad misconception of what true Christianity is and what it teaches. That many in the name of Jesus Christ do precisely what Jesus would teach them not to do. And what Jesus Himself will someday judge them for doing. That's, it, just, it, it, it grieves our heart to think how the New Testament is misunderstood. We think of that, that disconnect. Let's bring it into our own lives. It's also tragic failure to recognize the organic continuity between the prophets of the Hebrew Bible and the mostly Jewish authors of the New Testament and Yeshua the Messiah. We need to see that connection. We need to see that continuity between. Jesus crucified and risen defines the new age of salvation and the Israelite prophets prophesied and longed to see that day of salvation. 
As sad as it is that Jewish people typically fail to grasp the relationship between the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, we should also recognize the need we have to see ourselves in light of this continuity. There is an organic relationship between us in our salvation and these Hebrew prophets. There is a preparation there that God has made for us. And we now, in this era of fulfillment, standing in the stream of their achievement, enjoy the high privilege of new covenant blessings. On us, the fulfillment of the ages has dawned. We see in Jesus Christ the greater Adam who gives to us His righteousness, who in a garden did not choose His own way, but submitted to the will of the Father. We see in Jesus the true Abel, innocently slain, blood now crying out, not for our condemnation, but blood now crying out for our acquittal. We see in Jesus the true Abraham who answered the call of God to leave what was comfortable, to leave his setting, and to journey out into an unknown world where he would create a new people. We see in Jesus the fulfillment of Isaac, not just offered up by his father theoretically, but truly sacrificed for our sins. We see the Father place the Son on a cross on the mount. And we now know that He loves us. We see in Jesus the greater Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives his offenders and uses his power to save us. We see Jesus, the greater Moses, who stands between God and his people and mediates a new covenant. We see Jesus, the greater David, his victory becoming our victory, the true king of righteousness, the greater son whose kingdom will never end. On us, the fulfillment of the ages has dawned. How do we respond? With disinterest? Do we respond with pride? Aren't we special people? How foolish would that be? We should respond with joy, with hope, with faithful endurance and full acknowledgement of our highly privileged status on this side of the cross Peter's readers understanding where they're coming from. They're outcasts. They're despised. They're nobodies. They're in the minority. Forgotten. Abused. No, you're not, says Peter. No, you're not. The fulfillment of the ages has dawned. You stand in the stream of God's saving grace. You have a highly privileged position in Christ. Know this. If you're separated from that position, you have not come yourself to personally know Christ as your Savior. There comes this great King and Savior who offers the gift of eternal life. 
I encourage you to turn from your sin and to come to Him in obedience and to trust His saving grace. For those of us who know Him, can we not rejoice? Can we not cling to this faith and thank God for what He has done through the ages to provide His salvation to us and to know of our privileged standing before Him and to rejoice? Let it draw us closer. Let us be awakened to the taste of the wonder of our position in Christ. How privileged we are. And yet, we look forward. The day is dawned. The new age has come. The fulfillment of the ages is upon us. But there's more to come. Let us set our sights on that and endure to the end. Father, we thank You for the reminder of what You have done for us in Christ, what You have done for us through the ages. And I pray that a new taste and a new sense of who we are will be birthed into our souls. I pray that you will encourage us to discern your saving purposes, to help us to walk worthy of you. We thank you for this reminder and for the salvation that we have that is rich and free, unfading, that continues with undeterred progression to advance upon us until Christ comes. It's in this that we set our hope, not in the things of this earth, not in who we are. We as a church come before you in prayer, before your throne to say that it is in this message of salvation in Christ that we place our ultimate hope and confidence. In you alone do we rejoice and worship. Before your throne we bow and thank you and ask that you will form us, that we will be faithful to your calling and to your grace upon our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen.